Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hi folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 168, Surviving Economic Shifts Will Require Drastic Thinking. I don't know if that's the best title for this episode. I wanted, I wanted to title it something like, How Could We Have Saved Blockbuster Video? But I thought maybe people wouldn't listen because they wouldn't get it, so I tried to be more in, in line with the overriding idea than the actual subject that we're going to use. So today I was listening to uh, Pomp's podcast, which I, I really recommend, one of my favorite podcasts, and um, it was episode 662, and it was called Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future with Jeff Booth. And I'll just let you know right out of the gate, I have a link to that podcast, and I also have a link to uh, Jeff Booth's book uh, called the same, basically the same title, uh, Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future on Amazon in the video notes uh, for you there. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to order it and I'm going to read it um, after listening to that podcast. If it's enough to get me to do my own episode referencing it, it's generally enough to get me interested in, in, in the, the person that was speaking in, in their books. And his, pod, I mean, Pomp's podcast, if you know, is, is always business-centric and it's almost always crypto-centric. And this one was as well. Uh, they got into how this deflationary economy that we're entering in is spurred on and also responded to by things like Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, and NFTs. But this is not this week's cryptocurrency episode, if there is one this week. Um, we'll mention it here and, and there, but we're not drilling down on it. We're really looking at something totally different. What they were saying in that show is that we are headed, or I should say what the guest was saying, we are headed into a deflationary economy. In fact, we're already there. And that everything is pushing the economics of our society into deflation. And I know that might, like, this is why I said in, in my preamble today, try to suspend what you think you know is true before we, we get into this today. Because when you're sitting out there and you're saying, well, look at what the price of a ribeye steak is, or a pound of hamburger, or a gallon of gas, right? Uh, or an AR-15, right? You're, you're thinking, this clown is an idiot. He's here telling me that we're experiencing deflation, but we are experiencing deflation. And we're experiencing deflation in some sectors and inflation in other sectors at the same time. But can you think of something? I'm looking in the comments now to see if people can think of things that have deflated over the last 20 years. One says TVs. Uh, interesting, Left Scene Adventures also says, Be Kind, Rewind, Deflated. Yeah, I know what he means. Like, VCR tapes, you can't even... They actually might have inflated, because only hipsters want VCRs now, right? Uh, and oddly enough, we're going to talk um, about uh, Blockbuster Video here. And it wasn't really Rewind by the time we got to this, it was DVDs. But many things have deflated. 
And many things continue to deflate and we don't even realize it. And we don't realize it, ironically, because of inflation. So I'm going to come back to this later. But I want you to think about this. The value of your labor has deflated. The value of human labor in general has deflated due to a variety of things over the last 20 years. The value of human labor has deflated, even people that got raises. If you're doing the same general labor, you're being paid less. And what hid it from you? Inflation. So I said we can have inflation and deflation at the same time. But I want to go back in time. I mean, I've talked to people that are like, man, if I would have known back in 2000 what would have happened to XYZ stock, I'd be rich today. And I'm like, really? Did, 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 you, did you have any money back in 2000? Because you don't sound like you did. You have no money in 2021. You, you probably didn't have. So how would you have bought this stock back in, in Y2K if you don't have any money now? Just because it was going to go up in value. Or, I, man, Bitcoin, if I would have known back in 2014, did you have any money? Like, was it doable? So let's look at this another way. Let's go in and say that you and I, right now, having this conversation, I'm the CEO of Blockbuster Video. You guys are the giant board of directors. And onto our radar has come a company called Netflix. And we are raping our customers, and we're able to do it because we have over 6,000 retail locations. And we have customers hooked on the idea of Tuesday night's movie night. They stop by Blockbuster. They pick up a DVD or two. We always have lots of the latest releases available. It's kind of expensive, but it's cheaper than a trip to the movies. And if you, if you screw up and don't get the video back in time, we rape you with a late charge. But, hey, we're convenient. We're right down the road. 6,000 retail locations, all the new releases. This upstart is charging about 25% of what we charge for a DVD. And you can get, I think it was two at, a, two at a time that you could get. Keep them as long as you want, put them in an envelope, and mail them back to them. And that seems like an unsustainable business model to us. right? We don't really understand what they're doing yet. But somebody from our tech department and somebody from our investment analyst department has come before us and said, you don't get it. These guys have no intention of continuing this business model. They're training their customers. They're training their customers to do business with them on a monthly basis on a fixed cost and, and receive a product to their home. And we're like, what, what, what do you mean? And the tech guy goes, man, I just talked to a bunch of my friends that don't understand what's going on with the Internet And they all just got like cable modem and DSL service. And they're calling me up because they know I'm a computer guy. And they're like, I just got DSL. It's so much faster. How do I get to my AOL, though? And we all look at him because we're all, you know, aging boomers already. And we're like, what the hell is that? Everything? And he's like, you don't understand. We're going to have videos screaming across the Internet. Right now, I can go to like the cable company, like Comcast or Spectrum or whatever, and I can buy the bandwidth this company in this corporate headquarters pays $10,000 a month for. I can get almost that good of a service for like 50 bucks. And this is going to open this up. And, and, and the investment guy goes, yeah, and this is what Netflix is going to do. They're training these customers. They're building this customer database. They have all their marketing that's going to pour into this. They're going to flip a switch. And they're going to offer a streaming service. And as this rolls out, 
people are going to be paying like seven, eight, nine bucks a month and watching unlimited videos and shows at their house. And unlike us, where we have to keep turning over inventory and all the legacy older videos that people actually like to rent that old video, we only have one copy of in the store, they'll be able to have like this incredible long tail of content. And they're going to kill us. They're going to murder us. And then the CFO speaks up and says, if this is true, we're fucked. Because we have to pay to maintain 6,000 retail locations and like 40 to 50 employees per location. And, and our financial bleed against that doesn't work if our margins go down anywhere from where they are right now. And I want you to think to yourself, what would you do? And the, the obvious answer, right? the obvious answer is, well, you enter the streaming business yourself before they dominate the whole thing. And that would be the most basic response. It would seem like common sense, but would it work? Would it work? Where do you get the money to develop the technology and the resources to be able to compete with this model that's already on the way? And it's coming down on you like a freight train. In fact, it, Netflix is ready to go with it, okay? Netflix is ready to roll, All they're waiting for is enough broadband penetration in the, the country to make it viable, and boom, they're going to flip the switch. They're going to hit every single person in their database with an offer. You know, maybe first month, $4.99, and then it's $7.99 a month. And they've got the database, and you don't. You don't have the same type of a database. You have a mom or a pop who's pissed at you because they've been paying late fees on your shit. And you don't have money. All you have is real estate. But you have another problem. Anybody know what the other problem is? What's happening to malls and, in general, real estate in the brick-and-mortar business at this time? What, what's happening to strip malls, actual malls, all types of retail spaces at the same time that this is going on? This is, you know... Early 2000s. What's going on? The internet is starting to sell all kinds of goods and services. And even though retail brick and mortar is not going out of business, it's in decline. It might only be a slight decline, but it's a decline. Now, you're trying to sell retail property to raise capital into a declining retail environment. And you don't want to freak out your investors. So your CFO says, I know, standard move out of the corporate playbook. We'll sell all the locations of our 1,000 lowest performing stores. This will actually give investors confidence that we're shoring up profits, and we'll use that capital to pour into this technology. And your, tech, your CTO says, hmm, I like that idea. And then, like, one of your other finance guys goes, hold on, hold on, I ran the numbers. I ran the numbers. Um... Our, our, our lowest performing stores are the lowest performing stores, not because of this happening, because it hasn't actually happened yet. They're our lowest performing stores because they're in the locations that in themselves are in decline. Like the retail spaces in these areas are in decline. We may not be able to sell them for what we owe on them. Well, now what? Now what? What do you do? Like if we unload, in fact, if we unload the bottom 
We may raise some capital, but now we've liquidated 50% of our retail locations. Our investors are freaking out. They are chunking stock over the fence. The short sellers are coming, and they're going to short our asses to the ground on this. All your golden parachutes, board of directors, fucked if you do this. And we don't get the money we need to do this anyway. Shit. I know, we go to our big investors, we ask them for money. Oh, you're going to go to your big investors. Your big investors who bought into your model were completely changing the model. And these are all rich old guys that don't get it. You know, like the rich old guys like Peter Schiff that don't get Bitcoin. Where are you going to get the money? You're leveraged out the ass. If you take on a bunch of debt, you might start seeing the short sellers come in on your stock. What do you do? Ironically, what you probably need to do, and you need to figure out how to be very slick with your marketing around why you're doing it, you need to sell your top producing retail locations. Doesn't that sound fucking crazy? Your business model's in decline, and you're going to sell off your most profitable locations. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because you can get the most money for them. They're the locations that are still in demand. You actually have a massive amount of capital available. So you have to slowly liquidate, and you probably don't want your top, but you don't want your bottom, you don't want your middle, you kind of want your 70 percentiles. You start closing those locations, selling those, those locations off. You take your top locations and you refinance and extract as much capital from them as possible. That's what you have to do. So you raise as much capital as you, as you can. You create a new division for streaming services. And you have the ability on the flip of a switch to, to roll it over into its own entity that is not connected to the previous entity when you're going to eventually file Chapter 11 or maybe you're going to have Chapter 7 filed on you by your creditors. And you begin to move capital over there. You take your lowest performing locations and you start liquidating your DVD industry inventory for the cheap. But you make a deal. You make a deal. You pay us X dollars. You fill out this form on our computer here in the store. And you give us 20 bucks a month. You can come in And you can rent four DVDs a month for that, but you keep them. And you start liquidating inventory that's going to be absolutely fucking worthless very, very soon. And as you liquidate from those stores, now you begin to sell them off as you can a little at a time. And you keep accruing capital and you keep investing it in your new division, which your lawyers have put a massive protective wall around so that it can be spun into its own entity eventually. And that way, if Blockbuster dies, this lives on. Very difficult to do. And you start training your customers to buy from you on a monthly basis on a fixed cost. And you start building a database of customers that like to do that. And you start marketing Blockbuster streaming to your TV. Half the price, 5,000 times the quantity. Every And I don't know that this would work. I don't know that this would work, but it might. And every conventional means that Blockbuster could have used 
every proven playbook move that Blockbuster could have done by this point in time, by the point in time where they realized the threat, and they realized the threat was a combination of not only a competitor, but multiple competitors and technology. Because what, what, yeah, Netflix did buy out Redbox, but Redbox ripped into Blockbuster's ass at the same time. Because it turns out, if all you want to do is, is rent out the latest releases of DVDs, you don't need a freaking 5,000 square foot store. You don't need a bunch of people paid minimum wage that aren't worth minimum wage to carry benefits on that don't show for work. All you need is a little machine where a guy pushes a button. And, you know how many DVDs you can fit in a box this big? Right? So you had two competitors hitting you at the same time. And one competitor just said, you know what, if we go to companies like you know, supermarkets and discount stores and shit and be like, hey, we want to put a little box and plug it in the wall and we'll do everything and you can have 20% of the profits... They're like, okay, yeah, we have 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 locations. How many boxes do you have? So they were going to get raped on both ends of this, both on the physical delivery, because you can do it for cheaper, and it's not really that big a deal if the person doesn't return it that early, and you don't have to rape them hard on, on prices. By the way, if you rented it at the Walmart across town, and you have to go do your grocery shopping at the Publix across the street, you can return it there. They don't care. They pay a little merchandising guy to kind of reorganize the inventory when it's necessary, and boom, they're hitting you again. By the time they realized that was going on, every conventional move, because the most conventional move, and you've seen it, if you've paid attention for the last 20 years, if last 50 years, when a retail establishment begins to decline in value, they sell off their worst performing locations first. And they always say it's going to prop up the business, increase their profitability. Been to a Sears lately? Been to a Sears lately? I think Sears still sells, like, appliances. But that's a Sears. Well, we're just going to close down the ones that are... It's the beginning of death. But it's what's always been done, so it's what people always do. Kmart, exactly, right? Uh, Mervyn's. Very, like, there's a ton of these stores that have done this, and... There'll be a ton more. Like the ones that are still around that seem like giants now because they're the ones that remain, like Kohl's or whatever. Like Kohl's made a deal with Amazon to bring people into the store. I don't know if you know this. They're trying to adapt. They're thinking differently. You can take an item that you need to return to Amazon, to a Kohl's, and go to their service desk, like with it all taken apart and not put back in the box and everything, and just go, here, here's my return shit, and they take care of it for you. Huh, I wonder, maybe I should buy something here. That's what they're doing. Will it work? I don't know. But at least they're playing it a little bit differently. The freaking post office is dependent on Amazon right now. Why do you think the Biden administration exempted the United States Postal Service from the vaccine mandate? Why do you think, really? Because they have one of the most powerful unions in the country, right? And if you do that, then their union just might say, we don't like this, we're going to go on strike. So no postal service or limited postal service. Well, that's going to piss some people off. Oh, wait, isn't it going to piss the guy off that writes the big checks to you, that Jeff Bezos guy? Right? This is the interoperability of all these organizations. But that is in, a, in, in its own level as things shift and change. It's their weakness because they become entrapped. You see, Blockbuster was trapped. Now, here's how this applies to us as people, individuals. People that aren't worth billions don't have 6,000 retail locations. You have to understand this applies to you. We're in a deflationary economy right now. 
We are in a deflationary economy right now. I'll put, I'll put the uh, question up again. What has deflated in your lifetime? And a lot of people will say technology. Technology is the biggest one. It's the easiest one to recognize. I was thinking about upgrading the size of the screen on the TV in um, my workshop for the uh, the event this year that I, I run every year. It's a 65-inch screen right now. I was thinking about going to 75. Looked at the prices and said, I'll wait another year. People can get by with a 65 for one more year. Because I know it's coming down. A 50-inch TV, like 10 years ago, was thousands of dollars. Today, you, tons of options under $500. And they're better. The worst ones made today are better than the best ones they made 10 years ago. But what else is deflating? Like I said, cannabis is deflating, right? Um, human labor. Human labor is deflating. What is deflating human labor? Technology. Automation. Your human labor is worth less every year as more and more technology can do your job. It's not there won't be jobs for people. They'll pay less or there'll be a lot less of them. Meaning if we figure out to make this thing used to require 10,000 hours of human labor and that cost was X, now to make this thing maybe it requires 200 hours of human labor Maybe we pay a lot more power for that human labor, but the prorated cost against the output has gone down. Meaning that the most valuable asset that most people have, in fact, the, what I would call the universal asset that people have, their labor is in declining value. How are you going to deal with it? Start thinking about it. What else is in declining value? What is the number one asset that most people eventually obtain at least a piece of in their life, right? Shelter, your house. Oh, Jack, you're crazy now. Real estate, man, it's going up in value. What if we enter a phase where we hit kind of a cap on this runaway price of real estate, which I just covered on the podcast yesterday, where it starts to level off? But the greedy government, because, you know, governments are never greedy, continue to push property taxes against the home. If your cost of servicing the home goes up higher than the value of the underlying asset, which most people are never able to truly realize the value of the underlying asset without being strategic investors, multiple locations, levering one property into another, rental, etc. Like, if you're not doing that, the actual real value to you of your home will become deflationary while your income is becoming deflationary. And if you do the things that your grandfather taught you, work hard, save your money. Like I was taught, in, in literally in high school by teachers who meant well, the most value, because I had some like business classes and stuff like that, the most valuable thing you have is your labor, at least right now. And while you're young, you can work two jobs. You can work three jobs. You can work two full-time jobs, and you can work one side hustle. Like, work. That's what you have. You have work. And it was at a time when they still believed that the amount of money we made in real dollars would continue to go up. It was right about that time that it actually began to go the other way. Old world thinking, new world problem, big problem. The, the people that have done well from my generation either got highly specialized, where we earned lots of money, we went into incentive-based compensation like sales, or something with structural bonuses where we got a piece of the pie, or we built something of our own. 
everybody in my generation that just goes to work and does a job based on their labor is worse off than their parents if they had been at the kind of the same equal station in life. It's already the case. We're saying it's going to be the next generation that doesn't have what their parents have. We don't, we're already there in real dollars, in real reality, when we look at the effect of the inflationary component of the economy against the deflation. And this is why things like cryptocurrency make sense. Because they don't seem to make sense to the old guard. That's why people like Peter Schiff are like, there's no way, it doesn't make any sense. Old man yells at Bitcoin, right? Doesn't understand the technology. Doesn't understand you've built a deflationary currency for an economy evolving into a deflationary economy. What happens when you devolve into, or evolve into is probably a better way of putting it, a deflationary economy, a deflationary world, and you keep your money in an inflationary currency. In the words of Michael Saylor, the road to serfdom is working exponentially harder for a currency that is growing exponentially weaker. That does not mean cryptocurrency is your solution. And I'm going to say this again because I have to. 95% or more of cryptocurrencies are fundamentally worthless, garbage, bullshit. I call them kleptocurrencies, right? They're, they're, They're designed by a group of people to harvest your money and extract it. They're pump and dumps. One day, man, we're gonna do this. No, you're not. 5% is still a lot of opportunity. But of that 5%, still a lot of those are gonna lose. Yahoo built a great search engine. Nothing wrong with it. Doesn't make any money. Google makes all the money. So when you get past Bitcoin into these other altcoins, you're getting into a true, you're going from here is money to here is a technology battle. And you have to, you have to manage them differently in your mind. But then you have to look at other things. What are the things that will beat deflation other than crypto? I think real estate can. It has to be the right kind of real estate. It either has to be real estate that's not going to have massive increases on taxation or real estate that uses other people's money to pay for it because you still have the underlying hard asset. If, if Blockbuster was made up of a bunch of franchi- franchisees that had, that had paid for the underlying real estate, the franchisees would have gotten burned, but Blockbuster would have been okay if they structured it right anyway. What else? See, I am, in a, I am in a deflationary business. This is a risk to my long-term wealth. One of the things that's deflating at the most rapid rate, which is kind of what movies and music is, is information. I'm in the information business. So I either have to put out more valuable information and attract more people so my piece is a smaller piece but of a bigger pie, or I have to come up with other ways of, of, of developing revenue through the production of information. I have to stay at the cutting edge of information. I have to stay at a point where I'm always stretching you. That's why you get pissed off at me. I have to stretch you a little bit so my information is differentiated. I can't be an aggregator, regurgitator, and survive today. Can't do it. If all I do is tell you the news with a different opinion, I might even go up faster in you know internet ratings and how, how many followers I get, but I'm not going to make any real long-term wealth that way. Because the value of that information is more and more sources provide it, 
at a race to zero cost to the listener or the consumer is deflationary. So I have to figure out how do I repurpose the income I have today into long-term assets that are deflationary assets, meaning they match the economy. seems totally ridiculous. And deflationary asset isn't the right word. Assets designed for a deflationary economy. Bitcoin as a deflationary form of currency is perfectly designed for a deflationary economy. And this is the big thing to take away from this, and I want to end. The banks, the central banks, and the governments are fucked. There's no way out of this. They can't let it happen because the outstanding debt will crush them. But they can't stop it from happening because technology is evolving faster than the mind of a bureaucrat or a banker. Just like Blockbuster got destroyed, and if you had gone back and explained to their board of directors the thought experiment we did today, the actual thing they needed to do to have a chance to make it, how many people think they would have ever done it? How many think they would have ever had the balls to realize, hey, we got this wrong, we need to do this crazy thing a bunch of YouTubers say we need to do? What's YouTube? Huh? Right? There's no way, even if you gave them, like if we did a better job than we did today, if we actually ran all the numbers, if we actually came up with a formula, if we actually figured out exactly which stores to sell on which days to which customers for how much money, they would have never done it. They were trapped with one way out, and the one way out, they would have refused to take it. That's the global banks today. That's the central banks today. Overleveraged on debt that requires inflation to sustain while everything on the planet produces an economy that is doing what economies should always have done. Deflate. We have been taught that deflation is wrong. Deflation is bad. We have to have inflation. But nobody knows why. The answer is because we built the system on it that benefits us. And when I say us, I don't mean me and you. I mean the people that built the system. They built it to benefit them. There's no benefit to you and me by having constant inflation. It forces us to put all of our wealth at risk rather than put all of our wealth into protective savings. And when we actually simply loan money where we know we're going to get paid back to get either negative interest or ridiculously stupid interest that will never outweigh inflation. How does that benefit you and me? Of course it costs less to buy a TV today. We know how to build them quicker, faster, and cheaper. That's why, in spite of inflation, what would a freaking TV cost if we lived in a deflationary economy? Why don't you just work this out? What would it cost you, costed you to buy a typical median-priced American house in Bitcoin in 2014, and what would it cost you to do it with it right now? And you start to see the picture very, very clearly. And there will be new ways to leverage against this as we move into the future. I think almost all of it will in some way relate to crypto. It will involve things like NFTs. Investing in real estate fractionally would be one example. Investing in content creators fractionally. Imagine if you could invest in me fractionally. Quarter percent of Jack's income as a content creator over time. And you could trade that. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But if I were Aaron Lewis, I'd be doing it right now. 
because the value of an Aaron Lewis download of his song is in decline, but he's still going to reach millions of people. And there's still a tremendous amount of wealth to be earned there. And the more people you have pushing your content, the more value your content has. And I can't think of a better way to get people to push your content than to have them have a stake in it. All of this is coming. There is no way to stop it. The banks are screwed. And if you're not aware of it, you will be too. You're going to have to think completely differently than your parents and your grandparents and all the conventional wisdom that led up to this point. Because from this point forward, the economy will be different and will continue to change more rapidly than it ever has in human history. And all it's really doing is reverting to a natural state. The artificial state that we exist in has met its end. And that's good, but it's going to hurt. With that, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Well, hi folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 169. Yesterday, we talked about kind of a, a collision of reality that we have inflation driven by money printing, which I think most people are really familiar with at this point. If not, I don't know what rock you've been under or what have you. Um, and at the same time, we have truly in society a deflationary economy that wants to exist. Prices should be going down. I mean, if you go and you go way back before there was cryptocurrency, before all the crazy money printing and things like that, if you read, read Rich, Dad, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, you will see that Rich Dad explains to young Robert, and I believe the quote would be something to the effect of, Robert says, well, shouldn't prices naturally go up? And Rich Dad says, not in a well-ordered and run economy, they should go down. In that when we make technology more efficient, if it's a technology product, obviously that makes technology more affordable. But technology drives business, right? Whether you're manufacturing widgets or providing services and say, well, Neo, or whatever you're doing, in the end, it is technology that enables and makes business more efficient. If something's more efficient, it has a lower underlying cost. Since we're in a competitive marketplace, despite what people try to change with pricing controls and all, and I want to sell for less than you, and I want to sell better than you for less than you, so I can take the business, prices should naturally push downward. And that collision is happening right now in real time. But we're also seeing what looks like runaway inflation, specifically on certain assets and certain, certain classes of goods. But there is more going on here than Joe Biden's a moron, which I agree, most politicians are morons, and the Fed has printed too much money. Well, we call those days, you know, weekdays, right? And, and weekends, too, right? They, they, they put, print too much money all the time. They're printing too much money for the lifetime of most people listening to the stream right now. It's not new that they're printing too much money. Now, they did just print a gazillion dollars of too much money, but it's not the only reason that we're having prices go up right now. There is a fundamental economic law that even if you took economics in like you know junior high and eighth grade or took a little bit more advanced economics in like ninth or tenth grade in, uh, in in high school, one of the first things you learned is what the law of supply and demand. If there's more people that want to buy a thing, then there are people selling a thing. The price of the thing goes up, and if there's more people selling a thing than want to buy a thing, then the price goes down. Real simple. And no matter what government does, that law of supply and demand will kick in. Now, government can exasperate this. 
And there's, there's two real ways they can exasperate this. If they print lots of money and do a good job of distributing it, then more people have more money and more people want to buy more things. And you might look at an item, let's say a coffee cup, and say, well, that's worth like three bucks to me. Uh, but if it's kind of cool and like, you know, you kind of want it, but if it was priced for six bucks, you're like, I'm not buying it. It's not that cool. But if you're walking around flush with cash, all of a sudden, that's eh, only six bucks. So we can, we can drive demand higher by making money more easily available. And also government can get in the way of production and delivery models and create shortages that are unnatural, right? So if you, if you give people lots of money and tell them, oh, by the way, your landlord can't evict you for the next 18 months, and then you're, you're, you're printing checks and mailing them to them or actually depositing them in their bank accounts, then you're giving them an extra $600, you know, Uh, a, a week of unemployment or something like that, and they're flush with cash, they don't have to pay their bills, and no one can throw them out. Then they don't work. And then you have a worker shortage. And if you tell some companies you're not essential, right, then their workers can't go to work to earn a living, and then they can't produce the thing, and now you've created another supply crunch. And while all of this is going on, if you have... Nations that you're relying on to import goods from doing the same type of shit, you can end up where you have what looks like runaway inflation, but what you actually have is a supply squeeze. Now, I think a lot of these you know, enhanced prices, they're caused by various logistical reasons more than inflation. The inflation is not yet fully realized. The inflation, and I've explained this many times on my podcast and on streams and on interviews, inflation in this country does not work the way people think it does. They, all, everybody thinks of Zimbabwe, Argentina, Weimar, Germany, where it just runs away. When they throw money into this economy, it is so interconnected, it is so complex, and it's so top-heavy with the elites at the top. You throw money into the economy, a lot of it fills holes that used to have debt, and when you When you pay off debt in a fractional reserve economy, the money literally disintegrates. The debt goes away, and then the money goes away. Because if we create money with debt, then we destroy money by paying debt. That's how it works. That's how fractional reserve works. And you can balance it better than people think. They've done it since 1913. Okay, And they've made it basically work. We, we bitch here in this country, but countries like the United States, we, we have a dramatically stable economic system when it comes to a monetary system. It might devalue money over time, like 98% over 100 years, but it's, a, it's a, a consistent devaluation that people can plan for and adjust to. A lot of places in the world, they would kill to have our monetary system. Not so much our freedoms, but our monetary system. That's why a lot of these countries that are really screwed, they use the U.S. dollar. Even though it doesn't benefit them as much as if they had their own currency they could properly run, it benefits them more than running their own currency and not being able to do it well. So, so we kind of have this whole dynamic at play pulling against each other. And then we put these supply shocks into it. But here's what comes next. Here's the next foot dropping in this menagerie, in this mess. We have some shortages that are, might be exasperated by the logistics, right, But they are actually physical shortages. We have shortages right now in grains, specifically in soy, which really isn't a grain, but just in that whole big five of 
feedstock and food stock for people, right? Feedstock for, for livestock and, and food stock for people. And we had pretty poor harvests last year due to weather events and some other issues. Then we sold a massive amount of that to other countries while other countries were barring exports because they saw the shortage coming. And here if we have that kind of shortage, people maybe pay more for food or eat a different type of food. In some countries, if you have a shortage of rice, you have a famine. If you have a shortage of wheat, you have a famine. right? So those countries are like, this shit's not happening to us. Or you crater an economy like, if you look at Argentina, so much of their economy is built on uh, beef exports. That, and if they're feeding those animals to finish them corn and soy, they're not exporting that shit. So then you have these real shortages of materials. Then you have logistical shortages of materials that are actually shortages of materials, but it's not a shortage of the underlying commodity. That would be lumber prices. So it takes 15 to 25 years to grow the short, the quickest growing trees that we have for timber, which are pine. So we don't have a shortage of trees to make the lumber with. If we stopped planting trees today, we wouldn't really realize that shortage for 15 years. So it's not like because COVID they stopped planting pine trees. But getting the tree cut down moved to the mill, sliced up, made into lumber and plywood and stuff like that, that's been disrupted. And at the same time, everybody's building from home projects to new houses because the housing market boomed. And you have a dramatic increase in, in, in demand with a shortage in supply. And lumber went for a while through the roof and then crashed down. But this has happened, especially in the building trades, like across the effing board, folks. And it's leading to the next shock. And I just got an email today. It's not the first one. I know it won't be the last one from this person or from other people like him. And this is especially being becoming visible in the building and construction trades. It's called phantom orders. Or that's what, that's what me and this gentleman are calling it anyways, phantom orders. What does that mean? That means that as a building company, I don't generally take an order for a new building or a house or a campus or something like that on Friday and break ground on Monday It's not how, and then deliver the product by the end of the month. That's not how that particular market works. There's, a lot of these projects are planned out months or even maybe a full year in advance. And they're saying, okay, we have this building that we need to build next spring, and we're going to break ground in March. Uh, the walls will be up and all. We need to put roofing material on it by June. That's when the roof will be on the building. And so we need to order roofing material for this, you know, 10,000-square-foot industrial building, um, you know, and, and we need that by June next year. Usually that's no problem, right? Because the companies that manufacture that material, like, they love that long forecast because they can, they can gear to it. So what happens is they say, well, we need roofing material. And they say, the quickest we're going to get you any roofing material is June next year. Not, the, not this group you want, period. You know, we're, we're going to be shipping in maybe May. So all these construction companies are like, well, shit. So what do they do? They go to three different suppliers. They put in three orders for the exact same quantity of this particular, where it's underlayment, shingle, metal, whatever it is. They order three or four different sources, sufficient quantity to do the one job. And then there'll be some sort of restocking fee, maybe 10% or something like that. And they'll, they're willing to eat that, and they, they, they button it into the bid 
with their customer. And if there's an increase in price, a lot of times what they're doing now, they're writing things in the contract. The customer will have to assume a certain amount of overage if the price goes up, right? And maybe to, to get the customer to agree, they say, and if the price goes down, we'll cut you in on that too, right? So then all this shit happens, and all these bids go out, and all these cu customers say, yeah, we're going to do this, and they sign a contract. And all of these suppliers, they're, and they're doing it with nails, they're doing it with screws, they're doing it with adhesive, they're doing it with underlayment, they're doing roofing, they're doing it with structural steel, they're doing it with lumber, they're, they're doing it across the board and all this shit. So eventually, one of the suppliers says, we've got your order. Then what do they do? Cancel, cancel, cancel. Those were the phantom orders. So now think about the fact you've got this incredible paper boom And this is just in construction. This is going on in other industries, too. It's just really visible with the long timeline of construction. And you've got all these marketing, sales-type, regional managers, global managers, national managers, distribution managers. They have to, every week, submit to, or at least every month, depending on the position and the job, submit to kind of the home, the home base, right, the mothership. This is my forecast over the next 12 months. This is how much material we're going to sell. And then you, when you build a forecast like that, you put it in percentages. You say that there's a, you know, you have a bid out and you say there's a 10% chance this will close. It's a long shot. There's a 90% chance this will close. And then that percentage gets aggregated out against the total forecast. And the company says we're going to do $115 million in sales in this division over the next 12 months. And they base everything that they do on that number being a solid number. And a lot of these numbers now are going in at 100%. We have the purchase order in hand. It's on last month's books, but it's forecast for shipment in you know February. This is in the bag, but it's not in the bag. And so as this unwinds, as this clog is unclogged, as we stop getting ships stuck in canals, as the Chinese are like, we'd like some money now, please, and stop shutting down ports, etc., and all of this supply clog unclogs, and all of this material comes onto the market, two things happen. One, the price of a lot of this shit goes through the floor, and now you have conflict. You already agreed to this price last year. Yeah, but we, we know the reality, you know. Shove your 10% up your ass, and they go out to rebid, and all the numbers fall even for the people who complete the orders. Right? Then you have conflict between the, the end customer and the construction company about, hey, how much of the savings are you really passing on to us? But two or three out of you know three or four suppliers have geared up to develop and, and, and produce and ship and sell this product. And they've, they've put the number down on their forecast, and they've decided, we're going to be fine, and wah, wah, you don't get the order. Now, I'm going to tell you what I would do. If I were some of these companies running these three orders, four orders thing, as the clog became, becomes unclogged, If I take supplier A's order and say I'm going to make it official, I'm going to actually take delivery on this, I'm canceling B and C for this job and this material. The next time that comes around and I'm going to say I'm going to cancel with A and I'm going to keep my deal with B and then I'm going to go to C and I'm going to rotate it around and I'm going to try to spread my actual business across those three suppliers. Now why am I going to do that? I don't want any of them to go away and I don't know when I'm going to need them. 
when you do construction, and I, I did it with cabling, underground, and in building. Uh, people I know do it in, you know, actually building the buildings, doing electrical, plumbing, etc. Your suppliers are how you fund a lot of your jobs many times. Like, they're actually fronting you a, a big portion of the materials. Maybe you're buying, you're putting 10% down and you're phase billing your customer and you're, you're actually using your supplier as financing in, in many instances. So if you piss them off, Then they cut you off, and when you come back in the future and say, yeah, we need enough roofing materials to do a 10,000-square-foot roof, they go, yeah, remember the last time that happened? Now, everybody knows this is going on, so hopefully they're mitigating it with some of their forecasting and estimates, but my guess is since everybody has to go to their boss with an Excel spreadsheet and a chart and make them happy, and the more the number go up, the more happy they are, and the more secure their job is for at least the next quarter or two, that most people are fucking lying about this. And they're not being sane. And this is all going to be just, this is, here's a big fire that's a problem. And a fire truck comes in, and there's two fire trucks. And one starts spraying water, and the other one's spraying fucking kerosene. That's, that's the best analogy I can give you in this. And this is going to, this is going to cause just bluntly fucking craziness in our economy over the next year or two, most of the honest companies in this say, this problem, we don't. it's like one of those um, things that's filled with water and you try to grab onto it. I don't know what they call them, but remember when you were a kid, if you're you know, an 80s kid or a 70s kid, you go in like the little gift shops and stuff, and like, it was like it turned inside itself, and it was a little tube about that long, and the harder you squeezed, the more it came out of your hands, and you just didn't know what direction it was going to go. That this problem across all the supply lines is like one of those things, but it's like a hundred of them, and you've got Vaseline on one hand and you've got Stick'em on the other, but you don't know which one you're going to grab with which hand. That's what this is like. And that means you don't know what's going to happen, what's going to go up, what's going to go down, where you're going to see the effects of deflation, where you're going to see the effects of inflation. And honest to God, if you take this, and you couple it to what we talked about yesterday in the last episode, where you have the collision of inflation and deflation, you either end up with the central banks continuing to print money and continuing to force money into the supply and continuing to suppress interest rates, and eventually you come to so much of a head with that, you're going to get, in various places across the world, and maybe here in the United States, complete and total, like, rioting, civil disobedience, um, you know, like basically Marie Antoinette let them eat cake and dragging politicians. Uh, I'm serious about this. This is what we, we think that like this shit can't happen in Europe or the United States. Right? Yes, it can. Anything that's happened anywhere at any time can happen anywhere at any time. Again. And, and you're, we're headed for like total freaking revolution and popular revolutions generally don't work out well. We have a pretty high view of how revolutions work in this country because our country was founded on like one of the best ordered, well-run, and, and, and most beneficial resulting revolutions that actually involve fighting that's ever happened in the world. This is not typically what happens. Usually when this shit happens, the resulting uh, end of that revolution is either more tyranny from the original authority because they won, or the new authority that wins becomes a dictatorship and a tyranny. Right, so... We got that possibility, and that's if they keep doing what they're doing. But what's the other possibility? 
The other possibility is they say, okay, we have to have a return to sanity and unwind this and go to more sound money and stop printing money and stop suppressing interest rates. And you know what happens then? Unless you get really lucky and the stars and the moon and the planets align perfectly and somebody comes down and blesses you from above, every financial institution, major financial institution in the world will collapse. And then you have complete collapse of society, at least for a time. Pick one. That's what you're getting. And this is just more fuel for it. I know that sounds nuts. And do we get out of this? Who's we? Does the United States get out of this? Maybe we get out of it better than some other places. I don't think we get completely out of it. Maybe we don't get complete and total freaking breakdown. But I think, along with what I talked about last week, this leads to more likelihood of things like, you know, Texas saying, see ya, we're done. And maybe some other states or regions or groups of states or coalition states going, we're not participating in this. And I have to, honest to God, tell you, if I was a governor in a state, that this was any potential that that would happen for my state, that we would break away. Right now, I would be building reserves. I know I sound like a broken record, but of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and gold. I would be building tremendous financial reserves. I would be building a new economic system inside my state. And when you say, but the Constitution says you can only make gold money or silver money, and you can't... And I would say, you know what, you guys fucking shit on the Constitution every day. We're running our state. We're doing our shit in our state. And as far as we're concerned, we're not making, we're not making it money. We're not coining it as money. We are creating a financial reserve and letting our residents and our, uh, our, our citizens take part in that in some way. And I have some ideas for that. I have to save for another day because I need to wrap up. But I would be doing that. If I were Greg Abbott, if I were Ron DeSantis, if I were Christy Nome, if I were, you know, Anybody, if I were any governor in any state and I wasn't a moron, which unfortunately most of them are, I would be doing something like that right now. I would go so far as to create a state-level retirement account, approve my own fucking ETFs for it, and tell the federal government, see you in court, fuck off. Good luck with it. You're, they're going to have enough problems. I'd do something like that. Again, we'll talk about that in the future, some ways that states could prepare themselves for this. Because it's going to be more important, I'm going to tell you right now, that a state prepare themselves for this from an economic stability standpoint than from a military defensive standpoint. It absolutely is. There's not going to be stomach for you know Civil War 2.0 in, in the Union fighting the, the, the state leaving. You might have a lot of warfare, but it's going to be more tribalistic, um, cities rioting, shit like that. I, you, I don't see tanks rolling from, you know from Kansas into Texas. I, I don't see that being very feasible. Of course, could be wrong. We will adapt, adjust as we move on. I will wrap up for today, and I appreciate you guys uh, spending another episode of Miyagi Mornings with me. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 170, and today we're going to talk about taking a step back. And we're going to talk about that in a couple different ways. We're going to talk about it when you just need to do less work, we're going to talk about it when you just need to maybe eliminate something, period. Um, or when you need to streamline a process, or when you need to automate a process, or maybe when you need to hire some help. Like, There's a lot of ways that you can take a load off yourself. But I kind of wanted to talk about this from the standpoint of one of my laws of life, and kind of you know admit that I don't always get it right with following my own advice. 
And and this year I've I've really kind of put a beating on myself with my workload, and it's caused it it's caused me I think to not maybe and sometimes perform as well as I should, but it's also caused me like you guys see the podcast, you see the videos and whatever, but you don't see my homestead. And like this is the worst year for gardening I've had since before I started TSP, um, because it just didn't get I just didn't pay the attention to it that I needed to. Um, I did some reorganizing to give myself Fridays off, but I've, I've increased my workload so much on the four days I'm working that when I get off on Friday, you know what I want to do? Nothing. And nothing carries into Saturday. And once you do nothing on Saturday, it's pretty easy to do very little on Sunday. And that's what's been going on since I made that change. Because I feel like I'm working harder than ever before, but I'm doing it with you know four days on and three days off. I'm cramming six days a week into four. So I'm going to make some changes. And this, this comes from my, my law of life, which is basically that we as human beings are batteries. And batteries require two things if they're going to have a long life, especially a long, effective, productive life. They need recharging and they need maintaining. You can't just hook shit up to a battery and drain it and think that anything's going to happen other than that battery's going to die. Now, as humans, since we are in some level self-recharging, as long as we eat and we get oxygen and we don't get really sick, we kind of keep going. But if we don't maintain ourselves and we don't take time specifically to recharge, actually get sick is exactly what we will tend to do. Um, I am not a believer in this idea, healthy people never get sick. That's just stupid. That's ignoring reality. That's not scientific. That doesn't make any sense. Healthy people get sick. It happens all the time. The truth, though, is that healthy people get sick far less, and they deal with illnesses, colds, flus, infectious diseases, etc., far better, and they're far more likely to uh, survive if they get something like a cancer or something like that. They're far more likely to survive, thrive, beat it. So we definitely want to be healthy. There's truth to that. But the idea that you never get sick if you're healthy is just its nonsense. It's total nonsense. And anybody that says it, um, at, at the point you say that, I'm the guy that's like, okay, now I know not to listen to anything you have to say ever again because it's nonsensical. But stressed, unhealthy, etc., more likely to get sick, more likely to get severely uh, sick, etc., is absolutely the case. Because when you're stressed, that's the case. How many of us have had gardens? You go out and you see... Some of your plants are completely destroyed by some sort of a fungus or disease. Some of your plants ha clearly have it, but they're surviving through it. And some of your plants look like they don't have anything. And people say, well, if that's, that's the, the soil's healthy, then the plants will be healthy. Well, they're all in the same soil. One way or another, some sort of microclimate, some sort of stress factor, has prohibited the plant from taking up the nutrient that's making the other plant safe. Or, or, you know, from that, that particular ailment or able to survive the infection of that ailment. So it is probably a nutrient deficiency, but the nutrient deficiency isn't because the nutrient's not in the soil. Maybe this plant gets not enough sun. Maybe this plant gets too much sun. Maybe these plants in the middle, the microclimate is they get just the right amount of sun on a daily basis where they can properly take up all that work you did in their soil. And human beings, we are like this. So I want to, one, help you guys figure out where you need to do this today and how you need to do this today for yourself. Um, and on the other hand, I want to kind of use it as an announcement for some things that I'm going to be doing. It's, it's not going to be that big a deal for you guys, but I think it's going to be a big deal for me. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to figure out, well, how can I make some really small adjustments right now 
that will make my life have a little bit less stress on it and give me a little bit more time to worry about things on my homestead so that I have more content for you guys from a standpoint of, look what I'm doing. Instead of, hey, look, my garden sucks this year, right? Um, and one of the things I thought is, well, this, this very thing right here, Miyagi Mornings, this all started in November last year at my workshop, where it was the first workshop, I think, since I started doing them, where I really like stayed sober all the way through until the night we did the tasting at the end. And I, I, and I, and I really got to be interactive with the presentations and all. I, did, I got things so organized that I didn't get drug all over the place. Like, I want to see what this person has to say, right? And, you know, Jack, 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 Jack. I've got everything chill now, man. I can, I can be at a workshop and I don't have to, like, walk five steps and hear my name yelled. And so I got to be involved with it, not just as, a, as, as someone putting the show on, but someone actually being there through the whole thing. You know, and I, I've got my health together and all that. So I'm like, I came out of that, and it was it was something that, a little bit of what everybody said. But it was really Jessica Mills that after I listened to what she had to say, I'm like, I need to do more. And I started Miyagi Mornings as more, and it was simple and it was fast and it was easy and it was unedited. It had no production values, nothing like what we do now with the live streams. Um, but it was still more. It was still another thing. It was still five a day. And now I'm putting as much effort sometimes into one of these for a morning show as I, as, I, as I did for my podcast back in the beginning when I was doing them for my car or when I first started doing them for my home office. So now it's like I'm doing, you know, four podcasts a day plus four Miyagi's a week or four podcasts a week and four Miyagi's a week. And the Miyagi's are almost their own podcast. So I've gone from doing five podcasts a week thinking I'm giving myself a break to doing eight. That doesn't work. So... What I'm going to do is my busiest day of the week is Wednesdays. So Miyagi Mornings is not going away. And we're not going to stop doing kind of this cool interactive thing. Because I love being here with you guys. I love seeing your comments. There's a, it's a total, and I love presenting this way. It's a total different dynamic presenting in video in a live stream than it is, you know, standing in front of a camera, you know, and, and just doing it and knowing I can make anything I screw up go away, right? And then actually having people to talk to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do Miyagi mornings on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. And I'm not going to do a Miyagi on Wednesday. That right there took 25% of the workload created by Miyagi mornings, and it's gone. And since these have gone from being 8 to 12 minutes to like 20 to 30, it's actually still more content than when I first started doing them. And it's plenty of content to do a Friday podcast for those that want to consume it in audio. So the Miyagi mornings on Friday, Friday recap will be three episodes, you know, it'll be an hour, hour and ten minutes. It's plenty for a podcast. That was a real easy decision to make. Uh, the other thing is, while I'm doing all this, and I, I you know, I realize that you, you take work on and you don't even realize what you've done to yourself, uh, I created Unloose the Goose. I got people together and we created Unloose the Goose, you know, and we did a great episode last night. It was fantastic. I'm not going to stop doing Unloose the Goose. But what I'm going to do is... In the beginning, trying to get it going, I made every single episode. And I, I put a team together so that didn't have to happen. So, you know, I, you know through this and, and directly, I'm letting my, my co-geese know, Jack will be at two of them a month, every other week. And that's what I've been doing for the last month, figuring they'll, they'll figure it out on their own when it happens, right? Um, but either the gaggle flies without me every other week, or there is no gaggle that week. That's, that's how it's going to be. Like, I think that we've created something really great there. And I'm actually looking to expand the gaggle so that everybody can do that. I, I want everybody to be able to take, you know, every other week off. If you do 
Two a month, that should be plenty. Like, we all have things to do. That's one more thing. And the dynamic of bringing different people with different opinions to discuss things and debate things, argue things, fundamentally figure out solutions is great, but I can't pull all the weight. And I'm not saying that I have been. I'm just saying I can't, I can't let myself trick myself into pulling the weight and always being there. I'll keep doing the editing for my, for my, uh, for my fellow gaggle members. You know, they, they can do on, on a week I'm not there. I'll take the file. I'll edit it. I'll upload it. And Nicole does a great job. Um, you know, but it's, uh, it's just something like I have to be, it, it, I, like I said, I've already been doing it for a while, but I need to make sure that everybody that's part of that team knows that. Like if you want this to be a weekly show, then you guys are going to have to, some of you are going to have to like make it happen on the weeks that I'm not there. And those two things are going to do a great deal for me already. That's already going to take, because part of it is, even when I don't do an episode, I feel compelled to do it. Like, stating it and being firm with it, that's going to help a lot. So, um, I, I really hope that makes sense to you guys. Like, And then the other thing I'm going to do, I was out looking at like the terrible state of my gardens this year. And going, this is insane, man. I love this and I'm not doing it because I'm so worn out. And I look at so many things that I got this close to taking into the point of automating them, and I never did. And so we're going to automate those. I, I figured out how to automate the wicking beds this morning in, in my aviary. I just like, you know what, I'm not going to try to get it. Because what I've been doing this week, I've been trying to get ahead of it. If I just start earlier, I'll be done sooner. And then that just makes more work is what it ends up doing. So I'm like, today, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay outside with my birds. I'm going to enjoy my shit, I'm going to drink coffee, and I'm going to see to some of the stuff that I should have been seeing to. And I, I realized with my wicking beds out there, they're in 100-gallon uh, Rubbermaid uh, stock tanks. I have so many weeds growing them because I haven't seen to it. I've been thinking about covering them like with a tarp or something, but there's you know some good peppers and stuff in there, even with my neglect this year. And I was like, that's, that's going to be a pain in the ass, and how am I going to do this? And I was thinking, you know, my peppers are going to be done in another couple months. And you plant some winter stuff in there, and it's really a summer system anyway. It's a spring-summer system anyway. And I realized, like, okay, so you have these pipes that stick out of them. That sets your water level. Why don't you just put a cap on the pipe, fill them all the way up, and drown all the weeds like they do with a rice paddy? Stick a hose in there, fill them up. And then break them off into three sections and take that pond you have in there and, you know, every day let that pond run water through them for... 15 minutes once a day. That'll keep them all topped off, and you just change a valve each day, and that's all you'll have to do, and they'll never need to be filled up manually again. Why didn't you do that before? Well, because you didn't think of it. Why didn't you think of it? Because you're stressed out trying to do a 100 different things. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, you guys out there, are there any things on your property or in your life that you could in some way automate? And, like, how much time would that give you back? And there's two ways it works. One, it either gives you the time back, or two, in spite of the fact that you don't go do it when you're supposed to, it still happens. My, my friend David, he sells automation to people, and I don't mean he's, he doesn't actually sell a automation product or system. He sells them the idea, like you should do this, right? And the way he sells that idea is, what would you do if you didn't have to do it? You know, what would you do if you didn't have to do it? Um, and I, I, I challenge all of you to kind of look at your homestead and say, you know, this little thing that takes you 15 minutes to do every day. Now, if you really love doing it, 
You're not lying to yourself, but you love doing it. You probably shouldn't automate that. You probably should do that thing every day if it if it makes everything really work for you, right? You should you should keep doing it. But if you don't really love it, automate it. You can just if you decide that day you want to spend 15 minutes with that thing, go watch it do it itself for 15 minutes and drink a cup of coffee. You'll be all right. And so there's ways we can automate things on our homestead. There's ways we can automate things in our businesses. Um, if you can automate so that when you do something, your email list gets notified immediately and you have to take a second step, do that. Right? We've, we've, you know, some things I've done this year with the help of Tom, uh, my, my, my guy that does all my web stuff and all, it was like we automated so that when I do a post at the Survival Podcast, it posts itself to Discord and then Discord posts it to Telegram. So I don't have to touch it. And I just think I have to figure out more things like that that I can do. There's also more than one way to automate a process. I think we have to define what does what does automate mean. Automate to me means the thing that I need to happen just happens. So that can be done with robotics or computers or timers or you know the most simple form of, of automation in the world would be a timer. A timer that goes into an electrical outlet. And it, it's on-off. It's one and zero, right? And if you have that, then anything that can be simply turned on and turned off, and if you set up what happens when power comes on and power goes off, that's automation. It's, it's already happened. That's one form of automation. Other forms of automation are more complex. Maybe this thing comes on and this valve opens, and then this thing goes off and this valve closes, and the next time this thing comes on, a different valve opens, and then we can zone something like irrigation. That's a little more complex, but it's still pretty much one and zero here, and one and zero here, and one and zero here, and one and zero here. It's, it's pretty simple. And that's when we say automation. Everybody's mind goes to this type of thing. If you have like a that, that, that robotic thing that worked on like a CNC-driven deal that basically weeded the garden for you. They think that way. You know what another form of automation is, though? People. It's automation for you. If you hire someone to do a few tasks for you, and they're worth the money that you pay them, if, if the return that you get from that person's actions are higher in value than what you paid them, essentially, it's not automatic for them, but as long as they show, you know, as long as long as they don't break, you've now automated something else. And one of the things I realized is, for quite a few years here, when we had a commercial duck egg operation, I had a farmhand, and all this little piddly shit, like when they would get done with the things they had to do every day, I'd say, well, go weed this garden, or go move these pools, or go do this thing, or hey, do you know how the tractor works without breaking it? Okay, then you can go mow this field or whatever. And you know, maybe I need to, uh, maybe I need to, to to look at doing that again. My my concern with that is, and this is something for any of you thinking about hiring a hand like that or something, is what made that work was the commercial ducks. It really was, and the reason it made it work is every day that that person came here, I didn't deal with. Well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Right, like. They had a base level of operations that they had to take care of. They would show up, here's all the dirty duck eggs since the last time you were here, clean them, package them, put them away, and you know, go take care of the duck pools, move them to the next location, fill them up, whatever. 
They had that base level of operation, and so they had about an hour of work when they showed up. And then I could just say, oh, and today also, and I had time once they showed up to think about what I needed from them that day. Because, you know, we're not, we're not a large enough operation where there's a clear workflow. And the kind of person you're going to hire to do this is going to be like a teenage kid or something. And they're not going to develop, at least anytime quick, this ability to say, hey, you know, I saw this, should I go take, you're going to have to direct them. And if you're going to hire people, that can end up being more work. You have to hire smart, and I don't mean smart people. It would be great if you could, but you have to hire from a standpoint of smart for your own system. So you have to know, I'm going to need about three hours of work out of these people, and then you have to sit on your Saturday maybe and make a plan for what they're going to do so when they show up, you can have them do it. And then you got to train them. And if, you know, if you're constantly churning through people, and that's part of why I haven't done it without having that base level, Because like in a week, you can tell this guy's going to work out or not if you have that base level to evaluate him on. If you're moving them to different tasks, you know, it's it's hard. But uh, can you make videos of how you automate? Yeah, that's what I need, Steady Presence. I need one more thing to do. Are you not getting the subject today? How about this? Like, since you could actually make money doing that, and, and why don't you go make vi Why don't you go learn how to automate and make videos of how to automate and make money on it, and then I can watch your videos, and I can learn how to automate, and I can automate my shit by learning from you, and then I can be like, hey, he's got this badass stuff, guys, go look at it, and then you can actually have a successful business, too. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, and I don't mean to pick on you or anything, but like, I'm sitting here talking about <laughs> taking a step back, and I got somebody throwing comments on me about doing more work, and right now, I'm not doing more work. I've actually got another project that I'm working with a partner on, but they've taken a specific portion of it where I pretty much have to show up and present and teach. So I can do that. And when I do that, I may actually pull back some other things while we get that done. And then that creates an evergreen product. And that's what, that's what you guys need to start thinking about. How can you do work that keeps working for you? Because even though I'm kind of like worn out right now um, and need to do some adjusting, You know, episode one of the Survival Podcast, done all the way back in 2008, that's on a website that will deliver it to anybody that looks for it and clicks it, is still doing work for me. And 2,900 plus episodes of the podcast, and every, every one up until the one I have to do today is still doing work for me. It's in Google, it's in Yahoo, it's in all the search engines, it's in all the aggregation services, it's all out there still doing. All the videos, all the Miyagi videos I've done this year, right up to 170 now, They're still doing work for me. And that's part of what I think you have to do is you have to start thinking about if you're going to do these things for yourself, how do you leverage them? So there's other forms of automation, right? YouTube, Odyssey, etc. These are forms of automation. We put up a video, and it's on-demand content for people anytime they want to see it. And if that video drives traffic, makes direct ad revenue money, promotes a product, promotes a service, promotes a brand then when you're sleeping at 3 o'clock in the morning and somebody's bored and they're up Googling shit or searching for shit on YouTube, your business is working for you. You know, I've explained this to my grandson and I'm trying to get him thinking this way already at 10. How, like, when we're fishing on a Friday morning, I'm making money through automation and through process and through business. 
And, and that, that should be part of this if you're an entrepreneur. If all you are is a homesteader with a job, then the automation should gear toward your homestead. But even with your job, like what can you automate at your job and not tell your employer about? <laughs> you know, how, how can you bring some piece of the concept of the four-hour work week from Tim Ferriss to your job if you can? How can you make your life easier or better? And I think one of the things that people have a big misconception about, and I want to wrap up today, is the idea that if you're going to do a thing anyway, videoing it, documenting, and putting on YouTube is just a little bit more. If you actually want to be able to create videos that show a process, like I'm starting out with some buckets and a timer and some pipes. And this is how I'm going to assemble them, put them together, and make a hydroponic system out of that. If you start making your own videos, you will have a new appreciation for content creators immediately. Because honest to God, you will put, even with what looks like a low production value, just making sure lighting's right, angles are right, you got this, you pieced it together right, you will do more work on the production side than on the doing side. I can build a system in maybe an hour and a half, two hours. If I document it, it'll take me two days. If I'm actually concerned with documenting it to the point that you'll be able to do it, and that's why most of my videos on systems you'll see, well, here's the system, 20% built, there's what it does, okay, catch you later, because that's what I can do. And I, I guess I'll throw that out as my final piece of advice. Like, Don't think that since I'm here saying I need to take a, a, a bit of a step back from work today, um, that I'm in any way downplaying the value of doing this and having a hard work ethic. Like I said, I was, I, guys, I was 36 years old when I started the Survival Podcast. And I'm 49. That says something about the longevity of the show and the longevity of the brand, but it also says something about the body of the man doing it, right? Like I feel like I'm in way better shape today than I was 10 years ago, physically, like as far as my weight and my overall health. But I'm still 10 years older, and you know, there's a joke that your extended warranty runs out for men somewhere around 44, 45 years old. That's when shit starts breaking for real. I think there's some truth in it. There's a lot we can do to keep the body running longer, healthier, faster, you know, you know, metaphor, metaphor, metaphorical oil changes and whatnot. But in the end, I'm 13, almost 14 years older than when I started. And that's part of, I think, what got me into this is my mind is still that 30-year-old that was running multiple companies that would work 16-hour days. And I'm just not there anymore. And I, I also had to come to terms with the fact that... Uh, That's okay. That's okay. I'll still outwork 99% of people, and that's good enough. And, and I'm going to keep doing that. And I will tell you one more thing that brought this to a head for those of you that caught the stream on uh, Monday. Monday's stream about life after the military cracked something open for me about my life and about many of the things that I talked about, about the mistakes that you make in your life. And, you know, when you're you're 27 years old and you're you're – You're not nice to someone, I'll put it to you that way, that you really had no, like, I'm fine with, like, hammering somebody that needs hammering, but when you hammer somebody and they didn't, they didn't have it coming, and you don't figure out until 15 years later, the reason I did that all the way back then, and it was bad enough that you remember it, is because of this shit that was in my head. It's, it's hard. It's hard. That's why if you were here for the, the Monday live stream, you saw at the end of it, instead of hanging out like I usually do, I was like, I'm done, guys. 
I, I realized that that had happened, and I've, I've kind of struggled this week because of that. And I don't mean deeply emotional, walled up in a ball, rocking back and forth or something like that. I just mean that like I haven't been myself. And I think that's a good thing because it actually led me to this point where I realized, like, and I texted my wife yesterday, I'm like, I'm sorry I've been a bastard this week. And I need to take a step back and just stop doing some things. And I immediately got, like, a like, you know, like she was, like, excited about it. And I'm like, yeah, that, that tells me that I'm, I'm on the right track here. So, anyway, guys, that will end it for this week. I'll be back on Monday with another set of the series of Miyagi Mornings. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.